0: Hi and welcome to the Doctor Coffee Podcast, your weekly blend of motivation, encouragement, education, and insights into all things medicine for junior doctors and medical students in South Africa. In this week's Coffee with Consultants feature, we hear from Dr. Jared Zamperini about his path in medicine and his passion for the lesser-known specialty of obstetric medicine. Dr. Jared Zamperini is a specialist physician at the Charlotte at Hannesburg Academic Hospital and Witz University in the Department of Infectious Diseases. He is also the founding head of the Department of Obstetric Medicine at Charlotte. We discussed his journey to specialization, his thoughts about work culture in medicine, and what it was like managing the very first COVID-19 patients in South Africa. It's an incredible privilege and honor to have Dr. Zamperini on the Dr. Coffee podcast. Besides being a great physician, he is also a keen coffee drinker, a fantastic teacher of students and junior doctors, and a loving husband and father to two small children. Without further ado, here is Dr. Zamperini. Welcome to the Doctor Coffee Podcast, Dr. Jared Zamperini. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. Thanks for popping in for coffee. <laughs> and good coffee it is. So, first of all, um, with all of our guests, what we like to do is just get a sense of what your junior years were like. So, can you first of all tell me where and when you graduated from medical school?
1: Yeah, so I went to medical school at the University of Pretoria, Tux. I qualified in 2012, so I'm a bit younger than your previous guests, but better looking, Looking, um, some people would argue. Um, I then did my internship at Helen Joseph and Rahima Musa Hospitals, where I had a lot of mentors who encouraged me um, towards the direction I am in now. And then I did my community service time at Charlotte Pacheke. I spent a year in internal medicine, where I spent time in endocrinology, nephrology, infectious diseases, and in oncology, after which I went straight into a registrar post in internal medicine on the VIT circuit, and now here you find me. I got my FCP in mid-2019 and my M-Med at the same time, and I started in my consultant post at Charlotte in the start of 2020.
0: Wow, so you summarized eight or nine years all in one in one go there. I whole. did. So when you did your comserve, you actually ended up doing a lot of things. Was that by choice? Was that designed?
1: So a bit of both. I during my internship, I had had two loves. I did obstetrics at Rahima Musa and I had an amazing registrar who who just really inspired me. And I thought at the end of that, Jeepers, I'm doing obstetrics, this is for me. Um, I ignored the fact that I'm a bit clumsy with my hands and I'd probably be a terrible surgeon but that was it I was going to do obstetrics and then my next rotation was internal medicine where I realized that actually what I probably loved about obstetrics was the endocrinology the the infectious diseases, the medical side of things Hmm. and in that first year of internship in internal medicine my uh, head of my unit was Dr. Zahir Bayat who's now the head of medicine at Helen Joseph and I went to him and I said, look, I want to do internal medicine. What do you recommend? And he actually suggested that I apply to Charlotte for my community service. Um, And as the stars would have it, um, everything aligned, and I ended up getting my commserv post here. Then we were allowed to request what we wanted to do. And so I requested internal medicine. And then we worked, it was a bit of a strange system at the time, we worked during the day as registrars. So we, we functioned as... Um, registrars in each unit that we were in and then at night we still did intern calls Mm. so it was this bit of a A weird system (laughs) Yeah, it was a bit strange so until 4 o'clock you were your colleagues you were chatting to each other about consults and uh, you know coming up with things and as soon as the clock hit 4 you were suddenly the intern on call (laughs) which I won't lie some of the registrars abused Um, but you know we enjoyed it we wanted to do medicine we did whatever we could and then so yeah during my community service Um, a lot of my mentors in this hospital still, who I now work with, encouraged me to write my part one exams and to do my HIV diploma, which all happened in the space of six weeks. Um, My wife is a saint for for putting up with that. But yeah, it all happened in the space of six weeks. Um, Got my part ones and my HIV diploma and managed to write a case report and do a bit of research at the same time, which all added to my CV when I applied for a reg post. Oh. And then, yeah, then got into the reg post, which I'm very grateful for.
0: For the benefit of those listening, it sounds like you loved where you were working. Was that because you had worked in them before? I mean, you came from University of Pretoria, then came to VITS Circuit Hospitals. Yeah. Had you made a decision that you wanted to be Joburg-based? Yeah.
1: So, yeah, um, we in Pretoria, we had a system. I don't know how they actually work in final year at VITS, but where we did a number of mock rounds. For where to go for internship. And from the start of the mock rounds, I decided I was going to be a Barra intern. And applied for Barra. There were maybe five of us for the 15 posts at Barra. And then one weekend a friend and I drove through to Joburg um, and we met friends of ours who are the year ahead of us outside Ward 20. <laughs> and they just both of them looked like they had shell shock. Oh wow. And they one the one said to me, No, it's great. I I um I haven't had a weekend off for six weekends but now I'm going to and I'm so excited about it and we, we drove out, we, we were quiet from the gates of Barra to about the M1 <laughs> and we both just looked at each other and I ended up then applying for Helen Joseph and he ended up applying for somewhere in Durban. But yeah, I think, I think things have changed a lot over the years. I love my registrar time at Barra. It's, it's a wonderful place to do training, um, definitely in internal medicine, I think as an intern as well you get a lot of experience there. Um, that's not to say that other places aren't excellent for internship. Joburg was always the choice. I think it was a lot to do with my uh, my wife, my girlfriend at the time. We decided we were going to try and get to Joburg. And yeah, that's how we ended up here.
0: Yeah, awesome. Um, You mentioned you got your FCP. Uh, and also, I, I think you mentioned you did some research. Uh, you got an MED. What was your MED focused on?
1: So there, yeah, that was at the end of by the end of RAGE time. Uh, my MED was looking at... Fibroblos- fibroblast growth factor twenty three in patients with familial hypercholesterolemia. So it, it's really I, I I've I've jumped around a lot. I I never really knew what I wanted to do in internal medicine specifically. Well, I did know, but then I kept changing my mind.
0: Was that a topic that um, was kind of given to you, or was it something you saw a gap, or I was, was it something you were particularly interested in?
1: So I really enjoy lipidology, and I and okay. I love lipids. And so I went to Professor Rahl. Um, who's the world's expert on lipidology? And I said to him, "Look, I've got this. I've got an idea for an MEd." And he looked at me like, as you're crazy. That's a terrible idea." I can't even remember what the idea was, but me, the unseasoned researcher, going to the professor of medicine with the topic, and he said, "Look, why don't we do this?" And so he gave me a topic um, that he'd been looking at that yeah. that there were a lot of questions about, and it was wonderful to do because you know doing the research with such a seasoned researcher gave me a lot of experience and a lot of help in getting there so from starting out writing the protocol doing ethics applications um, getting funding it, it was it was very insightful and it's and it's all things that I've used to this day you know a lot of our COVID research uh, the, the experience that I had from my med was very useful and and I think you know people often wonder why you have to do an M-Med but all of medicine ends up being about research you you know there's there's the common in garden we know how to treat a pneumonia but we know how to treat a pneumonia because someone did the research wow, yeah. and and wrote the guideline and i think to have those research skills it doesn't mean you're going to end up being a researcher but you are going to be able to sit down one day in front of pubmed and you know put in a search string that matters that you can get the information you want for that condition that isn't just
0: a guideline based one two three as medical students and as junior doctors we often don't know what we don't know and to hear somebody explain very clearly the benefits, it helps you to to push through when you're doing that uh, research reports as yep. in your know, undergrad or your your em- exactly. you, you appreciate the value that it's going to have at the end of the, the road. You have touched on a little bit uh, what your speciality is, um, but I'd like to hear from you like, to describe to us what is it that Doctor Zam- Zamperini does. Yeah, so I'm I'm
1: an enigma. I, I will admit when I started in my post. So, I mean, to rewind, when I was five years old, I decided I was going to be an oncologist. Mm-hmm. Um, my grandmother died of... Specifically an oncology. oncologist. Yeah. On- oncology was for me. My grandmother died of metastatic melanoma, mm. and I was five, and I remember thinking, no way. And there was I was going to be a doctor from, from that age. And then got to university and realized oncology is probably not for me. For what
0: what was it that made you say I, I, it's, I, I
1: don't know I think it was it's probably a bit too difficult I'm, I'm not you know as Professor Paget said we're not all the sharpest tools in the shed but uh, no oncology just it just wasn't for me it just even when I did it as an as a medical officer it uh, I enjoyed the medicine of it but I think the you know it's it's it can be quite a sad specialty it's there's a lot to it so. Yeah, I moved away from oncology, and then my third year, I decided I'm going to be a cardiologist.
0: So oncology moving away from oncology was in in medical in med-
1: school, okay. Yeah, in medical school. Then I decided in third year I was going to be a cardiologist. We had a wonderful cardiology professor, Professor Kerr, in Pretoria, inspired lots of us to become cardiologists. I then did an elective with a cardiologist in third year, and when I started in my comp I was still I was going to be a cardiologist, and a lot of it was um, lipidology. Um, based you know the cardiologist managed lipids a lot at that time and then I remember one night it was about one o'clock in the morning I was on as the intern for cardiology during my serve, and the cardiology fellow came out at one in the morning he said sorry guys I'm sorry I'm so late I was just putting my little one back to bed Um, I couldn't get here as quickly as I wanted to I, I really tried and I just looked at this guy and I thought wow that's that is hectic that is amazing that he's come out Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if I want to be that person, okay. um, coming out at two in the morning and leaving my family behind, and, and you know, putting family second. Then I toyed with endocrinology, um, and that was definitely going to be the thing for about two years. And then, about halfway through my rage time, I managed an obstetric patient with a medical problem. I can't remember the specifics, mm-hmm. and I was looking up how to treat this patient, and I came across a journal called Obstetric Medicine, and I then went down a bit of a rabbit hole, which was a bit of a Wikipedia rabbit hole as well, and I discovered the specialty of obstetric medicine, which is the management of medical problems in pregnancy. And it's an established specialty in the UK, in Australia, New Zealand, and parts of the US, in Canada, mm. um, where internal medicine specialists, so specialist physicians, manage medical problems in pregnancy. So they don't deal with any of the pregnancy issues per se, okay. but any medical problems, so pre-existing, so your hypertensive, your diabetic, your patient with hypothyroidism who falls pregnant, or um, arising in pregnancy, so preeclampsia, gestational diabetes.
0: So the scope of your patients, does that include, when you say obstetric medicine, does that include um, post-delivery of babies, so outside of the perperium, like after the six yep. weeks?
1: So, so it's actually everything from preconception. Oh, wow. to to post so
0: somebody with PCOS who's struggling to yeah, conceive, see you, you might come pregnant.
1: to you exactly or you know someone with lupus yes. uh, they're on a number of teratogenic drugs how do we optimize their drugs before they fall pregnant so I came across this and I thought this is amazing this is what I want to do I, as I said I wanted to do obstetrics at one point and I spoke to two of the consultants here at Charlotte and they both looked at me like I was a crazy person like how why would you want to do that that's mad Okay. Is it, was it mad because it's combining two different specialties um, in one? Physicians, on the whole, don't enjoy managing obstetric patients. It's okay. it's different. It's complicated. Not everything is as straightforward as
0: as it might be. But isn't that true of all internal medicine patients? It, it is.
1: It is. But it's it's um, you know the the pregnant patient with hypertension is different to the preg- to the non-pregnant patient with hypertension. I suppose within that non-pregnant class of patients, there's the elderly patient, the younger patient, but it's, I don't know, pregnancy scares people. It's, uh, it's an unknown. It's, you know, is this drug safe? It's a lot of the time, is this drug safe? Can I scan this patient? Can I do an x-ray? Sure. Um, you know, can we do this? So, yeah, so these consultants said to me, no, you're mad, don't you? don't want to do that. I thought, oh, okay, that's, that's fine. Well, endocrine's got a lot of pregnancy in. I still enjoy endocrine. Then I did rheumatology at Barra as a reg, and I loved it. I really enjoyed rheumatology. And I thought, okay, gee, this is also young female patients There's definitely overlap here. And I finished my exams and I said to a senior consultant, this is, you know what, I enjoy enjoy rheumatology, but I think I'm going to do obstetrics, obstetric medicine. And he really broke my spirit a bit. He Mm -hmm. said, that's mad. That's, you know, it's not a good idea. It's not something you can do. Your friends are all going to do subspecialties that are recognized and you're going to be left behind as a general physician, um, you know, trying to make a specialty. Okay, well that's fine. I I hear what you're saying. I'm going to do rheumatology, mm-hmm. and there was a rheumatology post opening up at Charlotte in July of 2020. Okay, and I approached Prof. Muhammad because I knew this was during the
0: uh, the height of the COVID. This is end
1: of 2019 that I was oh, okay. that we were planning okay. that I knew this was coming up. And okay, I, okay. So
0: okay. COVID wasn't a reality yet. Exactly. No, no, it wasn't even on our radar. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I approached Prof. Muhammad and I said, look, this is what I want to do. He said, well, there is a post. Um, open in infectious diseases. It's a six-month post. There's always... The post that I'm currently in has always been around. It's it's sort of been a, a filler post that, you know, there's been a neurologist in the post. There's been someone who's not an oncologist in the post. So he said, just fill the post for six months mm. and while you work towards applying for a rheumatology post. You know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, I had yeah. to do the work. Yeah. And then <laughs> in March 2020, I was the consultant on call for infectious diseases. And... The first COVID patient came in wow. to Charlotte. And so then I ended up, you know, COVID happened. There was a lot of COVID. But I mentioned, I actually didn't mention, now that I think about it, I mentioned to my to Dr. Stacy, my head of department in infectious diseases, that I enjoy obstetric medicine. And she then told Professor Muhammad, the head of medicine here, who called me in one day, he said, what's this about you wanting to do obstetric medicine? And I thought, oh, here we go again. Another consultant is going to tell me I'm crazy. And having met Professor Mohammed, you can understand this, and I'm sure the listeners having heard his podcast, he was like, this is brilliant. We need this. This is forward thinking. Let's do this. Yeah. And I'm forever grateful to him because he has encouraged it. He has built it. He has um, given me assistance so that I have less infectious diseases duties so we can build up the unit in obstetric medicine. And I now, I don't want to say head the unit, but we're building the unit. We're building the obstetric medicine unit and we're getting busier we see a fair number of patients we join the obstetric high care rounds we co-manage two clinics with them Tremendous. and it's it's been a big thing and then it, in addition to that we've started the Society of Obstetric Medicine in wow. South Africa and we are affiliated to the International Society and just I mean I think COVID was brilliant in a sense that we all did online meetings and <laughs> we got to meet these people from overseas wow. who, which has been wonderful and yeah that's so how we get to where I am now.
0: <laughs> so there's there's two uh, little rabbit holes I'm going to take you down. Sure. First of all, uh, with regards to COVID-19 and, mm. and asking you what it was like in those early days, you've seen the first COVID-19 patients and, and things like that. And then maybe we start with the second question, which is um, now that it's establish, establishing mm. uh, here at Charlotte, do you think other hospitals, I mean, you mentioned Helen Joseph and Rahima Musa. It makes sense that there should be a consultant obstetric medicine physician at Rahima Musa, with the number of patients yeah. they manage and the disease profile they manage,
1: absolutely. So I, when I started off, I was doing rounds once a week at Rahima, um, and then it just got busy here that I couldn't keep going that side. And it's it's definitely they, you know, it's it's the the estimate is that you need ten thousand deliveries um, a year for one up to sustain one obstetric physician. Oh wow, Charlotte, we do about nine thousand. Before okay. the fire, Rehima Musa, as far as I know, it keeps going up, but it's between fourteen and 16,000 a year.
0: So they, they have a
1: greater need than here? They are so busy at Rahima. Um Barra does about 20,000 deliveries. Our cluster hospitals together do another 10,000. So there's a definite need. And if you look at the maternal mortality stats in South Africa, the biggest cause, uh, just, uh, just on 50% of maternal deaths are due to medical causes. Yes. Your major cause of maternal death in this country is non-pregnancy-related infections. Of which the majority are related to HIV. Yes. Um, your second most common cause is hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. Yeah. And then, you know, obstetric hemorrhage comes in and, and your, your primarily obstetric problems. Yes. But then you get medical and surgical disorders where everything is lumped in cardiac disease, respiratory disease, neurological disease. So there's a definite need. And um, the way we're moving is we, we're doing what, what high income countries did 20, 30 years ago, where Obstetric causes of death are coming down, and medical causes of death are going up. So our obstetricians are brilliant; they can manage obstetric hemorrhage. They, you know, antepartum, postpartum hemorrhage isn't as much of a problem. It's still a problem. Uh, don't get me wrong, but it's not as much as a, much of a problem as it was before. But now we're seeing, you know, patients becoming pregnant at older ages. So you know, someone has the pre-existing hypertension, has the pre-existing diabetes when they fall pregnant, and these things are coming to the fore and if you look at our maternal mortality stats we're sitting in 2019 we we're on about 99 per 100,000 so 99 deaths per 100,000 pregnancies whereas the uk is on about 8 per 100,000 the us is 19 so we've got a long way to go but but we've made huge strides yes. since they started reporting in 98
0: but when i think of hospitals like rahima you know it's a specialist mother and child mm. hospital they don't have an internal medicine physician just on hand yeah. to consult, whereas here at Charlotte, I mean, it's a short walk from Block mm. Five to Block One. Um, yes, they do have Helen Joseph, mm. but the point being that, if with the number of patients they should have, they, yeah. that they have as good as those obstetricians are, it's helpful to have somebody whose bread and butter is managing yes. these medical conditions. Absolutely, Simon. You—it sounds like you've been sitting with
1: Amy Wise, who's the head of obstetric at Trahima She's going to be on my case if she hears this. But yeah, no, they. It's, I think everyone needs an obstetric physician. I think the whole cluster needs a few and for us this is the start you know it's, it's Charlotte but you know we should be offering and we will be offering cluster services we've just managed to get a medical officer assigned to obstetric medicine it's, it's growing it's, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm proud of it it's something I'm, I'm happy to admit that I'm proud of because we've you know we started establishing this during COVID and it wasn't easy but it's, it's been a lot of just pushing on pushing on
0: and yeah we've, we're, we're where we are now Okay, so you mentioned COVID. Um, Let's take you back to the beginning of 2020, to March 2020, when the first um, cases of COVID were diagnosed in South Africa. And uh, at that point, Charlotte Bakpeke was the hospital that was designated for all COVID-19 patients to come to. Um, What was it like having the first COVID? I mean, were you excited? Were you nervous? What was going on in your mind? It was, yeah, probably
1: both. It was, you know, we had a couple of scares before. I remember there was a patient from Japan. Uh, there was another patient from the East who came with fever and we you know, did the swab, we had to send it to the NICD and it was, no, okay, this one doesn't have COVID. And then on the Friday, we got the phone call, no, that, I remember the group of patients or the group of people that went to Italy and came back, you no, know, mm. someone's got COVID and they're coming to the hospital. Okay, no, fine. And then, no, actually, she's not coming to the hospital. This was the Friday. And then the Saturday, I'd done my ward round. I'd gone home, it was about midday. I was lying on the couch about to watch the cricket and um, Sarah, Stacy, the head of infectious diseases, phoned me. She said, "Listen, the COVID patient's coming. Are you fine?" I said, "I'm fine. Um, I'll go in. I'll see the patient." Um, and it was it was very exciting. It was also very scary. You know, we were seeing Italy at that time, just being overrun. And like, okay, well, we'll do this. And it was actually now in hindsight, it was quite funny because we we got to the ward and we. The policy was so Charlotte is a is a designated centre for viral hemorrhagic fevers. Mm. So there's a lot of experience in the hospital with that. And so that was our infection control policy. Like
0: the the Lujo and
1: Lujo, um, um Ebola, survives, Lassa, that yeah. sort of thing. Yeah. So that was our policy. So I donned, I duct taped my gloves on and booties and Went in and saw the patient, and she was actually she was quite well. She had what now we would say, all right, off you go, head home. There's no way she would be even close quarantine to admitted. Quarantine for five days, and yeah, <laughs> quarantine for five days, you'll be okay. And the patient actually said to me, she said, "She'll never forget my brown eyes and my sweaty brow." And I don't know if that was a compliment or not, but I'll, I took it as one for my brown eyes. Um, and uh, <laughs> yeah, and then I remember I had to, I mean I phoned uh, Jeremy Null the head of infectious diseases at Helen Joseph he was he was helping manage the case I said Jeremy um, this patient has to sign this consent form what do I do with the paper and what do I do with the pen he said oh gee that's a good question and we uh, okay we signed the form and we threw the pen away and we put the consent form in a plastic sleeve and we left it somewhere for 48 hours to decontaminate and I took bloods to the lab and I had to take them into the lab in a double bag myself and put them into the into the box with Bloods go, Um, and you know it was all very you know quarantine and oh my goodness and lots of muttering, and then yeah then we kind of just got in our stride. It was it was hectic. I won't lie. I think you know there was a lot of criticism in the early days that consultants weren't pulling their weight for COVID. Okay, and I think it was. The registrars were on the ground seeing patients, and it was you know credit to the registrars. I say it all the time. I'm glad I wasn't a registrar during COVID. These guys worked hard, and we were doing the same, but probably a lot behind the scenes. We were writing a lot of protocols. We were coming up with policies, um, how to do it. And I think a lot of being a consultant ends up doing that. We mm. we had a we were strict at Charlotte that consultants saw patients. That we you know the so Charlotte's divided into specialty units. There's no general medicine, but we then. Subdivided all the specialty units into COVID units, so that consultants saw patients, did post-intake ward rounds, managed patients in the ward. Um, but still, you know, I, I credit to the registrars, the interns, and then you know the nursing staff, everyone on the ground who was yeah. at the coalface as patients wow. came in. We, we we were very deliberate though about making sure that everyone pulled their weight. And but as the
0: numbers climbed up, I mean, uh, I imagine that a lot of that initial, you know, duct taping your gloves yes. and all of that stuff had to fall away. Was it was it that it had to, way, had to fall away because of utility or was it that as it became apparent that, okay, it's not the same as like Ebola, mm. um, was there a relaxing or a, a loosening of some of the protocols?
1: Um, I don't think there was. I think it was that there were then suddenly protocols in place that we could plan it and say, this is what we need for this respiratory virus. And we probably overdid it a bit, um, although I don't regret doing it. I don't. Think anyone in our team who came up with the policy regrets it. No, sure. In um, the beginning, no one knew. Yeah, right? no, no one knew, and yeah, then it just sort of steamrolled. And by that first wave, we we were cruising. It was stressful. I think
0: a lot what of What those... was the impact like on your family? I mean, I imagine yeah. you had a, a wife and a, and a young, one young baby or two young babies. Yeah, wife, <laughs> wife and
1: two year old at, at the time. Wow. And my wife was pregnant. Wow. As well. So in July 2020, we moved house and it was first it was the it was the first wave and my wife was about 32 weeks pregnant so it was hectic it was it was hectic and it was just so much unknown we i mean everyone did it i'm sure you know any anyone listening will remember we did the the naked run to the shower yeah so in the garage yeah strip off in the garage clothes straight in the washing machine don't touch anything yeah um and we just didn't know. Uh, but, and, it, and it's hectic. It, it was hectic. We, we had colleagues get sick that went off work for a while that are still recovering. Did anyone pass away? Of our colleagues, directly, no. Sure. Um, I think so. A few family members, though. Mm. Um, but you know, when you start seeing your colleagues get sick, then yeah. it's, it gets quite scary. It gets quite real. And you know, family members as well. It, it gets quite real. It's, we, we are so good at compartmentalizing That, okay, this is work and this is home. And suddenly the two were just smashed into one and you couldn't compartmentalize. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where a lot of burnout came from, from from COVID.
0: So now Mm post-COVID, do you think that our healthcare system is better for it? Do you think it showed up some of our flaws and do you think we've fixed some of them? or Simon, you're asking the difficult questions. (laughs) I need more coffee. Um,
1: I think what it showed us is that healthcare providers, I don't like the term healthcare providers, it feels very impersonal, but, you know, lumping in doctors, nurses, everyone, when the time comes, we can work together. And you look at Charlotte, where we had the silo mentality, cardiology managers, cardiology patients, Um, infectious diseases managers, infectious diseases patients, oh, you've got your thyroid is off, you've got hypothyroidism, oh, medical endocrine in and endocrine needs to manage it. And suddenly you have a patient being managed by three or four different specialties. Where in COVID, it was, hey, listen, can you see that patient? We've got 10 patients, you've got mm. eight. Do you mind taking on the extra one? Sure, no problem. Hey, can you cover my call? All right, I I'm. I have COVID, I'm off sick. Do you mind picking up the slack? And when the sort of muttering, as always does, comes in, oh, this person's on sick leave. Mm. Um, it was, you know, you might be down in two weeks' time and they're going to cover for you. Mm. And I, I think it exposed the flaws in medicine of doctors are infallible. No, infallible is the wrong world. Doctors are invincible. Invincible. It's it's a we case can't of, get sick. No, doctors we're... can't get sick and physician heal thyself. Exactly. <laughs> so it's so I think that invincible thing fell down. You know, we had the, the whole thing at the start of COVID, you know, doctors are heroes, healthcare heroes skip the line at pick and pay. And suddenly the doctors were getting sick as well. And you had to take the time off because it was the law. And yeah. you just, you had to actually take time off. Whereas before COVID, if you got sick and you phoned and listen, I'm sick, it was, oh, okay, are you really that sick? Are you sure you can't sure. come in? Now the team has to pick up the slack. Yeah. And I think that's terrible. I think we, this culture of um, weakness must be, you know, there must be no weakness. You, you, you must push through and you must work. and I don't know where it comes from, but it's, I think COVID has helped get rid of that.
0: Where so, it, yeah. so from where, where I am now as a junior doctor, I think that there's two parts to it. One is the sheer burden on doctors and nurses mm. and, and medical professionals, healthcare providers for want mm. of a better term, that um, when somebody isn't at work, it is an extra burden. Um, and that's why there's that, that hesitancy and that reluctancy. But now I think the like as you said, the conversation has moved to a point where we're like, why did we insist people come to work when they had flu? Because the R naught's value of flu is is higher than COVID. You know, so
1: not even that thinking about getting your colleagues sick or infecting your patients or something. It's just yourself. I, I, I had a kidney stone between my written and my clinical exam. And I remember lying in hospital and I was in agonizing pain and the fentanyl or morphine or whatever wonderful opioid I was given ran in and I suddenly felt fine I had no pain and I turned to my wife and I said I'll be fine to go to work tomorrow and she looked at me and said are you mad you've got a kidney stone I said yeah but I'm feeling better and this was a Sunday I said I'm on call on Tuesday so if I go in tomorrow I can just see my patients and I'll be ready for the call on Tuesday and she said are you out of your mind and then I went to theatre and had the stone removed and uh, I think, uh, I don't know how R-rated this uh, podcast is, Simon, but when you're peeing blood, <laughs> a lot of perspective changes. Yeah. I thought, mm, maybe I can't go to work tomorrow. Then I got some more of the wonderful opioids and the pain was gone. I thought, mm, I'll be fine to go to work. But I was sitting there, you know, in s- feeling bad that I'd have to phone the second on call. Or at the time I was at Barra and we had a, a backup on the roster. And I was feeling bad that I had to ask the backup to do the call. Sure. When... I was literally lying in the worst pain of my life peeing blood and it's to think about it now it's crazy you know when in COVID you had a bit of a sore throat and a cold and you were sent home for 14, 10, 7 days as it, as it went down and I think we just need to be kind to each other Yeah. We, we this culture of just keep working so you don't let the team down instead it should be let them rest so they get better and can be at full health and we can help each other instead of letting each other down I don't know it's very philosophical but uh, it's 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 something that's bugged me for
0: a while so how much do you think is also like your own internal pressure to achieve and because you obviously work hard you've done a lot you don't want to let yourself or your patients or your team Mm. down and what I'm hearing is a lot of internal pressure I didn't once hear somebody say in your story Mm. I didn't hear you say the professor said I really should have done better
1: yeah, I, I think I think it's all of us though. It's it's probably from primary school where you get the uh, oh, he was at school every day of the year at the bottom or, of your report. Yes, says the number no of days, sick days actually. exactly. <laughs> no, so I mean I think it's obviously it's me. It's me personally as well. But it's it's throughout medicine. It's the uh, it's the muttering about someone not being at work when they're not at work, and you know that when your colleague isn't around, you mutter about them. And so when you're not around, you know they're muttering about you. It's it's. You know, obviously there's shirkers. There's always going to be a shirker who takes the, takes the advantage. But for the rest of the time, I think we just need to be kind.
0: Awesome. I love that. So besides um, that kind of advice, what advice do you have for the next generation of young doctors coming through? What is something that you've learned the hard way that you can spare us the pain? Hmm. Um, or uh, if there's any flaws, any weaknesses that you see in our generation of, of young doctors?
1: I think one of the big things isn't a flaw in you know, medical students and young doctors. It's a flaw in consultants and lecturers. And it's the minute you hit medical school or you know, maybe once you hit the, the clinical years, it's oh, what specialty do you want to do? Oh, oh, oh you're doing medicine. Oh, what do you want to do? And you, you know you, you've barely just gotten you barely just survived learning the Krebs cycle. And, and suddenly you have to decide, oh my word, I don't know. I'm, should I have a choice? Should I know what I want to do? And, and look, I, I understand I was, I always knew what I wanted to do, at, at least within the specialty itself. But I, it's, it's you know, once you're in medical school, what specialty do you want to do? What, what do you want to do? Oh, okay, you want to do internal medicine. Once you, you know, register on internal medicine, oh, what do you want to subspecialize in? There is nothing wrong with not knowing what you want to do. And there's nothing wrong with, with spending internship finding out what you like and don't like and then maybe doing six months of this in serve or six months of this medical office time realizing you know what i don't want to be an anesthetist i'm going to try something else and even outside of medicine one of my good friends who you will know um, is a medical education specialist you know he does medical education at fits and he loves it happy as the pig in the proverbial it's Another good friend of mine is a GP, he's happy. Another one, emergency medicine physician, an anesthetist. It's there's no shame in not knowing what you want to do. And there is really no shame in in taking time to decide what you want to do. So
0: take your time. Take some time off. And do listen something. to the Doctor Coffee podcast where we speak to all the specialists <laughs> about the path and Exactly and But, hopefully but, but that's all it part. as
1: well, Simon. It's yeah. it's medical training is specialist based. So it's what specialty do you want to do? There's no consideration for do you want to be a general practitioner? It's almost within the hospital system and within the the medical school system. It's like, oh, general practitioner. We need general practitioners. We need primary care practitioners. It's probably the most important cornerstone of medicine. So, you know, I think that's, for me, that's the big thing. But if you do know what you want to do, the best thing you can do is speak to someone in the department. Um, or, or in the specialty and find out what needs to be done to, you know, get yourself as far forward as you can. Mm. Without, um, yeah, to, 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 to get yourself, your CV as ready as possible. Um, so, you know, if you want to be a surgeon, find out what you need to do to, to become a general surgeon. If you want to be an obstetrician, do you need to do the diploma in obstetrics first? Do you need to, pediatrician, do you need to do the diploma in child health? Or what does each specialty need? Because each specialty is going to be different.
0: So, you are working currently in infectious diseases as well as in obstetric medicine. Uh, Maybe we can speak about both, um, but what do you see the next 10 years holding for those um, particular specialties?
1: I think for infectious diseases, we are going to do a lot more antimicrobial stewardship, antimicrobial resistance and having to deal with the fallout of that. Um, We're also probably going to see a lot less HIV. With new therapies coming out, and I mean, a colleague of mine is an HIV clinician, and she says she's very worried about her job in ten years' time. So I think a lot less HIV, a lot more um, drug resistance or antibiotic resistance. Obstetric medicine, well, I hope within the next by ten years' time, that's obviously more excited about my passion. I hope within ten years, obstetric medicine is a recognised subspecialty in South Africa. And I hope there is an obstetric medicine or an obstetric physician at least at every major hospital where deliveries take place or at least within each cluster and that it becomes recognized and acknowledged that
0: it's an important um, subspecialty of medicine. It's clearly something that you're passionate about. So what is the best part of obstetric medicine? What is something that really gets you going?
1: So, I mean, I've got a lot of bugbears that I'm I'm trying to fix and, and get right. But the wonderful thing about it is Patients tend to come in, they, you know, are healthy at baseline. They've come in now, they've got an acute problem. And once that baby's out, things tend to get better. And they seem to get better. And you've got this patient that had eclampsia, that was fitting, that needed magnesium, They needed ICU... And two days later, baby's out, they're extubated, they're sitting up eating their jelly and custard. You know, so it's, it's, it's really wonderful. It's that gestational diabetic who is on 40 units of insulin during the pregnancy, oh, yeah. and baby's out and suddenly... Enjoying cake again. Exactly. Well, not enjoying cake. Not enjoying cake. <laughs> but no, just, you know, that's suddenly better. And it's, it's just like, it's wonderful to see these, these patients. It's, it's, I struggle with it a little bit because you're there for nine months or
0: maybe a bit before, but afterwards. But it's quite unlike a lot of other internal medicine problems, where, which have a kind of chronic trajectory. Yeah. In that it can resolve so quickly, and you can see that turnaround, which yeah. is fascinating. That you are you are seeing patients, like you say, for that nine months, and the cure really <laughs> is just delivery. Delivery. <laughs> I'm
1: always jealous of the surgeons who see the problem and cut out the problem, as opposed to us physicians who just tick the tick the form for all the blood tests and write all hundred medicines up. So
0: it sounded, when you were describing the journey to your speciality mm. and the grassroots and, and the, the, the seed that was planted, it sounded like all of this was going on uh, while you were in the, the stages of developing your own small family. Mm. How has being a father impacted the way that you see medicine and specifically obstetric medicine? So I think medicine, I think you
1: realize how important your family is and how, this is harsh, but how replaceable you are in medicine. You, as much as your colleagues might like you and you may be friends with some of your colleagues, you, at the end of the day, you are someone filling a post. And I know that's harsh and I probably sound a bit, uh, a bit of a downer, but your family's always going to be there for you or hopefully they're always there for you. And I think we need to, it's the same thing as, you know, the sick leave and, and pushing ourselves. Maybe you need to take that early day once in a while. Don't shirk. Don't, don't let your colleagues down. But take that early day. Take your kids for ice cream. Um, you know, if you, if you have a family, it's, it's, it's to get out there and just, you know, do something outside of medicine. Uh, you know, I think about, I was listening to your podcast with Prof Paget about compartmentalizing. M- my wife, we met at Vasti, And so she kind of grew up with me and my friends. And she sort of learned medicine as we learned medicine. And we'll often go out for dinner and we'll start talking about medicine. And she'll be like, hey, enough stop it, no more medicine, talk about something else. Very good. And you realise, jeepers, that's like we've been sitting here, we not, not not talking about the rugby or the rugby or how we're we going to beat New Zealand <laughs> this weekend. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah. you know, other things that are, we're passionate about. Yeah. Um, I can't remember what the second part of your question was. So,
0: um, being just, a dad, how it's shaped, yeah, obstetric how, medicine. How, well, I think what I'm trying to get at yeah. is, has it, you know, I can speak from my experience Mm. seeing my wife go through three pregnancies Mm. that um, I was just in awe of the whole process of growing a a human life Mm. within her Um, and seeing the changes that she went through and the challenges she went through um, she really earned earned her stripes and um, I I just think that maybe there was something that you saw that's changed the value of obstetric medicine for you maybe that was something that i was hoping that there would have been like a blinding light moment where you're like you know i can be this to yeah. somebody I, I think yes my, i have two kids
1: my wife the pregnancy is pretty uneventful as pregnancies go i think what i realized is that if men had to have maybe the oh, ones no, being we're, pregnant we're, would have been cane and able no more um so I, I think that's the thing and i i think you know pregnancy is amazing it's it's amazing what the human body can do um, it's amazing what can go wrong as well yeah and I think from being on the other side you know from standing at the end of the bed to being next to the bed you you realize oh, my muscle obstetrician was wonderful and he's he's a great guy and it's it's um, you, you realize how much you stand at the end of the bed means to the patient you know you that patient might be the one you're seeing for five, 10 minutes today of your 30 patients that you have to get through. But for that patient, you're the doctor they're going to see today. And that five, Mm -hmm. 10 minutes means everything. Mm -hmm. So when you're seeing your patient, you know, don't think of the pneumonia in A5, you know, think of Mr. Smith who has pneumonia, don't think of, you
0: know, the Oh, the you're treating a human being, treat a human being, not just the yeah. pathology. It's,
1: it's, it's not just the hypothyroidism in cubicle, it's for that patient as much as they are one of 30, 20 patients, whatever, however many you're seeing today,
0: you are what they are there for, which is a difficult and balance to mm-hmm. have that human aspect, that relational aspect, taking into consideration all of their social, psychosocial stresses, but then also holding on to your objectivity. Yeah, Simon, so,
1: mean, you know, just. Morning, Mr. Fraser, how are you? Use the patient's name. It's, start as a medical student. If you listen to this, don't just... You know, when you're standing at the bedside and you say, this is a 52-year-old male patient, say, this is Mr. Tladi. He is a 52-year-old male patient from Alexandra. It, it's to the patient you are... You,
0: personalizing.
1: Part, you're personalizing. Them. Them. They're a person. Yeah. They are not a pathology in the bed. And, we, and it's something we do badly in the academic hospitals especially uh, just, yeah. so that, I think that's what I gained from that it's sitting next to the bed and that doctor comes in, you've been waiting for them all day uh, you know, oh my gosh, can I go home today or, oh, can we, can we take this medication, I was wondering about this, Are the you know, babies didn't sleep very well, is it okay and for, for that doctor it's, oh yes, of course, uh, just do this and then next patient but for the patient it's, wow thank yeah. you so much Oh, tremendous.
0: Yeah. So, uh, medical students coming through university now, what kind of resources should they use if they want to study obstetric medicine? Should they focus really hard on obstetric block and internal medicine block, or are there podcasts? Are there any resources you can advise them on?
1: So, you know, a very new specialty. It's a bit more established overseas. There is a Oxford Handbook of Obstetric Medicine. Um, there's a Handbook of Obstetric Medicine. Here they are, my, my bibles. Um, <laughs> then. There's a journal called Obstetric Medicine, the uh, the medicine of pregnancy. They ask that. There's a lot on Twitter um, oh, wow. with obstetric medicine. I, it's I find Twitter amazing for that. I try and cut out the vitriol and and just stick to that. And there's a lot of obstetric physicians from overseas who are who post quite a bit on Twitter. Um, do I find you want it, to
0: give them a shout out. Mention some handles that we yeah.
1: Should so you um, let me think about them. So Charlotte Fries, who wrote the handbook of obstetric medicine, Catherine Nelson PSC, who's the the Doyen of Obstetric Medicine, um, they're both on Twitter. Uh, Lisa Marie Viam, who is a colleague of mine, she's uh, was in Pretoria, has just moved to London, and will be coming back. Lisa Marie, if you're listening, you are coming back. Um, she, you know, she does that. Um, the other one, there's something called Obsmed Ed, which is a UK-based podcast, uh, not podcast, uh, a Twitter handle that uh, tweets a lot about obstetric medicine. Um, yeah, a couple of others that I. I'm not prepared, Simon, I'm not prepared. Uh, (laughs) No, already
0: you've, uh, I'm sure if we just look through those people's followers and their their mentions and stuff, we'll see lots of resources. This has been a fantastic conversation. I've learned so much from you. It's been great to get um, to know a little bit more about obstetric medicine but also about your journey in medicine. I think that the medical students and junior doctors in South Africa will really benefit from hearing this. Uh, You've dropped some nuggets of gold. Uh, So thank you so much for your time and make yourself available. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Simon. Thanks for having me. And just remember, be kind. I hope you enjoyed this week's episode as much as I did. If you know of a consultant or senior registrar in a specialty that you would like featured on the Dr. Coffee podcast, please get in touch. The podcast's email address is drcoffeeza at gmail.com. That's drcoffeeza with no punctuation marks. We're also on Instagram and YouTube with the username at DrCoffeeZA. If you've got anything else on your mind, such as a request for additional topics, further information on how to engage with our guests, feedback on the show, or anything else, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. The Dr. Coffee podcast is brand new, with freshly brewed new episodes each week on Apple Podcasts and Spotify please consider sharing this episode with fellow junior doctors and medical students in your world who you think would benefit from the content and enjoy. You can also help by posting a picture of your favorite warming beverage on Instagram with the hashtag Brew. that's brew with an E-W at the end, and mentioning at DrCoffeeZA. We'll repost every mention to our story. Thank you so much for your support.